Today's scripture comes from Matthew 4:18 through 25. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. All right, good morning. All right, full disclosure, I'm hopped up on Dayquil. Maybe allergies. I may be just dying. I may be slowly dying over the next 50 years. We'll see. Um, my name is Tommy. I'm the pastor here. And uh, yes, I, I like the vibe in here today. I like the... We're reading from Matthew chapter 4. Yeah! Woo! It's nice. Um, okay, so um, last week I sort of laid a, a base for how we're going to study the book of Matthew. Um, we're going at it um, as if we are the audience because you're, you're actually not the audience. The audience was Jewish and first century. Again, um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to last week. Um, and so we are going to try to get into the mindset of the original people um, listening to these ancient writings and bring them sort of, bring our minds to sort of where they're at and then find a way to sort of apply this today, which is complicated. Um, whoever told you the Bible's super easy to read, eh, they weren't like fully disclosing everything, there's a lot of information that you should be studying and reading and gathering um, to adequately like, understand the context of these ancient books, um, as with all ancient books. So um, I'm going to pray, and we're going to uh, read this passage, and uh, yeah, let's do it. Father, we love you. We thank you for this place and these people. Um, I ask that you would grant us peace that you would uh, allow us to be calm and present here with you and uh, in your body. I ask that we would um, be able to push aside the, the worries of our week, the stresses, the difficulties. There are things coming that we are, some of us are, are afraid of and some of us are, um, are worried about and some of us are ready to rejoice in. And uh, um, those things are real. And I ask that you would give us the right perspective to look at them with. But at the moment, I ask that you would help us to be here, to receive your love and your grace, and um, that you would take us on maybe a bit of a journey this morning, that you would show us some things we haven't seen. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to start off focusing on two verses in particular, Matthew 4, uh, verse 20 and verse 22. And they're very simple. One of them says, at once they left their nets and followed him. And the other one says, right away they left the boat and their father and follow Jesus. And when I was growing up, I would hear this passage from a strictly American viewpoint, and the whole idea was um, 
sometimes you got to have faith. And like that song. And then, and, and, you know, they looked up and they recognized the Lord and they said, yeah, but I have a job and I make money. What am I going to do? Um, but sometimes you should have faith that God's going to provide the money that you need. And because we're American, we make this passage, right, about money and having faith that everything will be taken care of, right? Um, that's great. You should have faith like that. That has nothing to do with this, with this passage, nothing at all. Um, there is a strictly Jewish way that you should be viewing this passage as the original audience would see. And when they read it, the original audience, they would read this. Um, they would understand exactly what's going on. Because how many of you, if you're at work, you're working on your car, and some guy walks up, says, hey, follow me. <laughs> and he dropped his wrench and left his dad standing there like, I need you to tighten this. And they followed and the engine falls. Um, and so, like, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us, what's going on. So, uh, in order to fully understand this, we're going to have to back up about 30,000 feet or so um, and look down. Now, I've taught a lot of this in bits and pieces. I'm going to put it all together today um, over the years. Some, this is some of my favorite ideas, some of my favorite concepts in scriptures. Um, and so today, I finally get to teach about it. So, um, this would be an ancient um, sort of Jewish dwelling. This would be the courtyard in the middle. There's a door here, a door there, a door here, a door up there, and a door over there. Um, lots of Jewish families living in this, in this particular structure in the first century, um, somewhere in Galilee, Capernaum maybe. Um, if you were here last week, you remember in sort of what I'm calling the county of Galilee, it's the region of Galilee, um, there are different cities. One of them was the Jewish city, Judea, means land of the Jews. Um, that's where they lived. Um, other than Judea, every other city would have these small little um, sort of gatherings of Jewish people living in like one structure altogether. They'd be working the same jobs. Um, they'd be, their children would be playing in the courtyard. And next to their, um, next to their, their place of dwelling would be the synagogue. This here is the uh, synagogue in Capernaum. It's ancient. It's about, it's about third century. Um, and you'll notice it's kind of tannish white. It was called the White Synagogue, and it was actually built on top of what's called the Synagogue of Jesus, which was built out of uh, like a basalt, so it's like, it's like black. Um, and so um, this is on the site of where Jesus lived in Capernaum, where he would have been teaching, where he would have probably sat in the synagogue and, and heard growing up all of the uh, sort of interpretations of the, of the Torah. And um, the families that are in that uh, structure we just looked at, they would... Throughout the day, regular times throughout the day, they would come here and they would sit and there would be a rabbi there that worked and they would kind of do what we're doing here, but they'd be a lot more talkative and they would be arguing and debating. And different rabbis would be visiting from different towns and they all had a different, what's called heresy, like a, a different teaching. Um, now heresy doesn't mean what it used to, um, but they all had a different sort of way of looking at everything and it was okay. And they would read these passages and they would debate them about the merits of them and each rabbi would have his own sort of heresy, his own like sort of view of um, different passages and, and how God worked in the world. And you would debate all these different ways of viewing God and it was all really important. It was a regular part of the day. Now, not everyone who lived in the town and who lived in the little Jewish community, not all of them would become disciples. Okay, we... Um, tend to describe 
ourselves as disciples of Jesus. We want everyone to be a disciple. Um, the fact is, in the ancient world, very few people were actually disciples of a rabbi. Um, and so how did you become a disciple if not everyone was a disciple? And we're going to talk about that. Um, so in this, um, in this synagogue, there would be this structure here. It's called the Seat of Moses. Um, it is where the person who was reading the scrolls would sit. He'd sit in this chair and he would read. The scrolls would be kept on the other side of the door. This was to the left of the door. To the right of the door would be... Um, I couldn't find a good picture of an ancient one. Um, to the right of it would be what's called uh, the Holy Ark. It's sort of a, t- it's a Torah closet. It's a closet where the, the, strolls would be, the scrolls would be, uh, would be stacked up. Uh, and a curtain hanging, probably purple, in front of it. They'd pull it aside, and they'd pull the scrolls out, and they would hold it up, and the people would kiss the scrolls, and they would reach out, and they would touch it, and they would hand it to the guy sitting on the seat of Moses, and he would open it, and he would read. Now, if he was a rabbi from another town, he would read the scrolls. Um, but if it was their local rabbi, different people and different students would take turns sort of reading the scrolls, and then they would debate. Um, but again, not all of them became disciples. Um, there is a specific way that people became disciples. Um, so let's look at this. Uh, this is a, an above view of the, um, of, in Capernaum, of that synagogue there. It's over here on the right, and I'm going to do some voodoo magic. Whoa. Okay. Um, uh, so the top half here is the synagogue where the people would gather. The bottom half here is actually um, a classroom. And the classroom is where um, children would learn um, the, the path of God, and, and they'd be sort of set on the path to discipleship. Um, it started at the, around the age of four or so. Um, all children, boys and girls, would be sent to what's called Bet Sefer, uh, which means the place of books. Um, and they'd be sent to this room attached to the synagogue. And it wouldn't be necessarily the rabbi teaching. It would be a local person whose job it was to simply teach the children um, how to... Uh, how to read the Torah, the first five books of the, uh, the Jewish scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, just the first, um, just the beginning. They wouldn't go very far, um, but they would do everything they can to memorize these particular passages. And it would actually be pretty impressive. They would memorize entire books sometimes. Um, um, as the story goes, one of the final um, tests to becoming a rabbi was... I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I hear lots of people kind of say it in that world, that they would take a needle and they would, they would take a scroll and they would put it through the scroll at a certain passage and you would be able, you'd be so well studied that you'd be able to tell which passages, which letters it passed through. Sounds impossible, but whatever. Um, anyways, um, I think it may be just a Jewish way of saying, oh, they know the scroll. Okay. Um, so at age four, boys and girls would study this. Now, girls would be actually be specifically schooled in in um, Psalms and Proverbs, which is why whenever you see women in Scripture, in, uh, in Scripture quoting Scripture, they're quoting Psalms and Proverbs. This is what they studied. This is what they learned. Um, it's the book of wisdom. And so they needed it for the family life that they have. It's a, it's a patriarchal society. And so right around the age of 12 or 13, um, the women wouldn't go any farther. They'd be um, sent off to learn from their mothers uh, the things that the women did in the community. And the boys... Um, at this point, would continue on into the next phase of school called Bet Midrash, which means the place of learning. And so these are very young boys, 12, 13. Um, This is actually the age of the disciples of Christ. Um, I know sometimes we picture them being like 25, 30 years old. They weren't. Peter was the oldest, which is why he always speaks first um, and why his opinion is always given first. Um, 
and he was probably 13 or 14 years old, which is why some of the gospel writers, um, some of them, like the, the book of Revelation, was written in the late 90s, long time. Um, and so they were pretty young. Um, so about the age of, of 13 or so, some of the boys would be told by the rabbi, you are, are excelling above the rest, you are smarter, um, you're a better student, you're good at memorization, you're particularly bright, you can continue on, and they would start learning Bet Midrash. But again, not all the students who attended Bet Midrash would become disciples of the rabbi. Um, and so, how did you become a disciple of the rabbi? Well, the, a disciple um, is, is, it comes from the word talmid, which means wise student. Um, we tend to Today, um, one of the definitions we use for disciple is a disciplined one. It's the same idea. It's encapsulated in that. Um, but a Talmud is a disciple. Several Talmudid, Tal, Tal, Talmuds are called a Talmudim. Um, so you can become a Talmudim of a particular rabbi. Um, now, the problem is we are so separated from these ancient ideas of how to become a disciple um, that oftentimes we take other things and we just replace the term disciple with these other things. Um, we tend to have programs or we tend to have people who just meet with somebody else and you read a book or something and you both talk about your struggles. Yeah, I gossip too much. Yeah, I look at pornography. And you just kind of confess some stuff and you try to learn some stuff you haven't learned before. And we call that discipleship. Um, if we're being biblical, that's not actually discipleship. That might be a class. That might be a program. Um, discipleship is a decidedly unique Thing in the ancient world, and it was not something we don't actually have anything that compares to it today. Um, and so it's sort of up to us to fully understand what discipleship was in the ancient world and to look at what we have today and to find out well, how, what is the closest we can come to this? Um, discipleship in the ancient world, um, the way it looked was a student who was excelling in what they did, who um, was incredibly smart, who um, was really good at memorization, and the rabbi saw it and knew it, and the students saw it in themselves and knew it, that they were excelling above all of the others. Um, there came a point where the disciple, this student, would go to the, to the rabbi, and he would say, may I follow you? And the rabbi would look at the kid, and he would say, you can follow me for three days, and I'll watch you. And the student would not leave the rabbi's side again, not once. He would sleep at the foot of his bed. There'd be several of them. Um, and, and you would, in the ancient world, see these rabbis walking with a little group of, of boys walking behind them everywhere they went, every building they went into, everything that they did. They'd watch him as he, as he buttoned his tunic. They would do it just like him. As he laced his sandals, they would lace their sandals exactly like he did, hand over hand, however he did it. Um, how he ate his food, the order in which he consumed his food and drank. Because remember, everything that a rabbi does, we talked about this last week, everything that a rabbi does, it's not just the words. Everything that they do is a message about how they view the world about how they view God. And so it's not enough to simply learn their teachings and be able to argue well. It's the mannerisms of their face. It's the accents that they, that they use when they speak. It's the way they would pronounce their words. It's the way they would move their hands when they spoke. It's the, uh, the way they would pray their prayers, the order in which they would pray their prayers. Every single tiny thing had a meaning and a purpose. And the disciples' job was to learn it. And the only way to do that is by spending every single moment with the rabbi. There's, um, there's a scholar named Reeve Vanderland who even talks about how they would, 
Um, they, would, they would even follow the rabbi into the bathroom and watch him use the restroom. And people laughed at that. He said, no, it's really important because when you come out, um, they would pray a prayer. And they would say things like, thank you for the holes in my body. And people are like, well, that's a really weird prayer. He's like, but to the ancient Jewish people, um, you were thankful for everything because what if one day those holes no longer worked and you were incredibly sick? So everything had this bizarre kind of prayer that would go with it. Everything. And the student would learn the prayers and the student would say them with them every single time. And perhaps you've heard the old sort of saying, the old benediction, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It's something that they would say, may you follow your rabbi so closely that you would be just filthy from following them down the dusty road. At some point, um, after several years of following this rabbi, um, probably two or three years, the rabbi would gather his disciples together and he would look at them all and he would say, um, go ye into Jerusalem, this city or that city, or they would name some cities. And I want you to go into that city and you're going to make disciples. And I want you to immerse them in my ways. It's the same word we'd use for baptize. So go ye into Jerusalem and make disciples of me and baptize them. In my way, does this sound familiar at all? Jewish, uh, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. This is what he did. Everything that Jesus did perfectly lines up with the tradition of rabbinical study. Um, and when the ancient people are reading this, the first century Jews are reading this, they understand what's going on. Um, they understand what it means when they read this passage. Let's read this again, and perhaps you will see it in a new light, shall we? Um, one day Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and there he saw two brothers. They were Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were throwing nets into the lake. They were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. I will make you fishers of people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers. They were James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee. As they were preparing their nets, Jesus called out to them, And right away, they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. Now, in the first century, imagine being a Jewish first century member of the audience of this book. Several things stick out to you right away. First off, in your mind, a rabbi is the pinnacle of the community, the most well-respected person in the community, what everybody wanted to be. Every young boy wanted so badly to be the rabbi. They all did. They all looked up to these guys with the utmost respect. They were the highest in the community. And they're reading this. One day, Jesus, the rabbi, was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and there he saw two brothers. And and, and the thing they're going to notice is simple. I'm going to underline it here. They were throwing a net into the lake. They were fishermen. They were in a boat with their father's ebony as they were preparing their nets. So they're with their father, and they're fishing. What are they doing? Oh, they, they flunked out of rabbinical school. This is what they were doing. This is all they had to do. They weren't good enough. At some point, either their rabbi or they themselves decided, I'm not good enough. I don't have the right qualities. There are others who are more qualified, who are more holy, who live up to the standards that are laid out there for followers of this rabbi. Um, there are so many others who are so much better at this than me. I don't have the confidence I don't have the intellect. I have these physical struggles and ailments. I have internal sin that I struggle with. I'm not good enough. 
I'm not going to go any farther. I'm not going to ask this rabbi if I can follow. And the rabbi never asked. The rabbi always received an answer, a request, because the rabbi wanted to know that the person asking believed in themselves because um, to put yourself in a position of spiritual authority over other people, you're going to get shot at a lot, and you have to have a bit of self-confidence to let these things bounce off of you. And these younger people, um, these younger boys, had to have the confidence in themselves to stand up and say, I want to be a disciple. I think I'm good enough. Whatever it was that caused these, these four boys to go home with their father and learn their father's trade, um, whatever it was that was inside of them, it was, it was too much for them to bear to become a rabbi. So they left. And the other thing the, the Jewish audience would see is this. Um, verse 19, come, follow me, Jesus said. I will make you fishers of people. And in verse 21, they were, um, Jesus called out to them. And right away they left the boat. Um, so Jesus is choosing disciples. He's going to people who never asked. He's going to people who didn't have the confidence to stand up and say, I think I could do this. The fact is they couldn't. They knew they couldn't. And Jesus goes to them. This is unheard of. So I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine being Peter, Andrew, James, and John. You flunked out. You're not good enough. You're not confident enough. Whatever it is inside of you, we all have these things, right? We all, we all carry these things that the accuser constantly throws back in our faces. Um, you're not smart enough. You don't have the piece of paper that says you completed whatever degree. Um, you don't have the right body image. You don't have the intellect. Um, you were born a particular way that other people aren't. You're a minority. Whatever. We all have these things that call out to us and they, they tell us, they glare in our faces and they say like, there are others who are higher than you and that's just how it is. And so they will exceed and you will not. They will be able to attain things and you will not. And then we have these four boys in that same position and they're working. The only people really lower than fishermen in those days uh, were like shepherds. And God oftentimes refers to himself as the shepherd. All right. And so Jesus walks up to these fishermen and he's dressed like a rabbi. John 14 actually talks about how people were constantly trying to touch the hem of his garment, and some did and were healed. Um, the reason is because they'd read the Old Testament passages. They understand um, what the prophets say about the power being in the hem of his garment and, and with, like the tassels there that the rabbis would wear. So he's dressed like a rabbi. So a rabbi comes walking along the shore and walks up to these boys and looks at them and says, Hey, follow me. Of course they're going to drop everything they're doing and follow the rabbi. Of course, once in a lifetime chance. Some rabbi has just come to me and asked me, I mean, this is like whatever field you're working in, this is like the king, the pinnacle of that field walking up to you and saying, hey, um, I want you to come work with me as my right-hand person. I'm going to show you how to do this. Yes, you're going to go. No matter what, you're going to do it. You want to know exactly what they're doing and how they're going to do it, and you want to do that. You want to be them. All of us are disciples of somebody. There's always, somebody, there's always somebody we're looking at saying, man, I just wish I could do stuff like that. All of us. And Jesus walks up to these guys and says, you can, I, I believe, I believe whatever is in you, I believe it is enough to learn what I have to teach. And not just that, but to actually go teach it and to make more disciples. And the fact is, somehow Jesus took these boys 
from fishermen to people who would write these letters and these books that 2,000 years later we would sit in this building and open and read and ponder and wonder how to be like them. Right? This is what Jesus does. And so what's going on here is that Jesus, everything he does is completely backwards. The places that he should go and make disciples and teach, he doesn't. The way that you would pick your disciples, he doesn't. He does it all different. It's almost like he looks at the entire system that human beings have made, and it's, like, it's almost like if it's made by humans, by people, it's upside down, and we're going to flip it back over, because that's what we do. Um, what Jesus is doing here flies in the face of everything that our society stands upon. It's, that it says that anyone can be lifted up, that anyone is worth another chance, anyone is within reach of redemption, even a failure can be turned into a rabbi, um, that, that the rabbi, the pinnacle of sort of, of the community, should lower themselves um, and that he should lift up other people. Like, the highest should be low. And this is all through scriptures. First shall be last, last shall be first. Humble yourselves and you will be lifted up. And how many times does God say this to us, yet every time um, it comes to society, we tend to treat the people who are gifted better and, and want to draw ourselves to them rather than those who are not. Yet everything that Jesus says is like, oh, I, I don't have, I've shown you 20 different ways how this is upside down and you're not getting it. You're not getting it. I mean, this flies in the face of the religious audience of this book. The people reading this book would be gasping at what they're reading here. Like, this is impossible. This rabbi's going to fail. There's nothing that this guy could ever accomplish because he's doing it all wrong. We have ways in which it's done. We know how it's done, and he's doing it wrong. Um, it flies in the face of, of what happens when we judge others as more worthy or more acceptable or more desirable. We end up with things like apartheid and Nazism. We end up, um, it flies in the face of those who don't welcome refugees, people who are in need because we, we don't want them here. It flies in the face of that. It flies in the face of people who would put to death criminals because, no, they can't be fixed. They can't be reformed. They should be put to death. Jesus enters into stories and says, I, I bet I could turn them into a theologian. <laughs> I bet we could fix it. I, I bet we could flip this thing right over. And we never believe it. And we always back away from it. And then watch what happens. Um, oh, yeah. So there's even John 15 where Jesus keeps having to remind them as they're going throughout their days. Um, and Jesus looks at them several times and he goes, he goes, I told you everything that I learned from my father. You did not choose me. Instead, I chose you. Now, we've spent 500 years turning this into like a verse about Calvinism. <laughs> this is just like literal. They're like, bunch of dudes fishing. I chose you. Come on. He's like, no. He's like, Have you not read Calvin? He's saying, I'm predestined for heaven. He's like, no, like I chose you because nobody else chose you and I saw hope in you and I chose you. That's, what, that's all I'm trying to say to you. Let's go. <laughs> You're thinking too deep. Um, he's like, I chose you. Um, and, and we have such a hard time with this because we have so many reasons for not choosing to draw near to people who are the failures in society. We don't want to be around them. We don't want to deal with it. I've, I've had two or three different pastors like the other day that I've met. This is seriously like in the last month. And they were like, like oh, you're, you're the watermark guy. I was like, yeah, I'm the watermark guy. Yeah, I, I sent some people to your church. I'm like, let me guess. You didn't want them. 
You didn't want them, did you? Send them all. We, we want them. And it hurts. Like churches. We are the body of Christ. We are the collective rabbi. How, how can we do things the way that we always do? How can we, you know, first thing you need to do when you're planning a church is to build a money base that, that are going to support the whole thing. So you're going to want to start in the burbs and you're going to move into... And the whole thing is upside down. And that's not how Jesus chose his students. We are the collective body of Christ. Watch what happens. The rest of the passage. Jesus went all over Galilee. And there he taught in the synagogues. What's he doing? He's doing the rabbinical thing. He's going to the synagogues. And he's meeting with the Jewish people the way all rabbis do. Because again, he's a rabbi. Um, And he preached the good news of God's kingdom. God's kingdom. Let's talk about that. So Matthew doesn't... Matthew, so this is actually a bit bit of a mistranslation here. This is the NIRV. Um, I believe we read originally from the ESV. Sometimes I'll switch back and forth to... For more of a more of a story feel, Matthew uh, in the original language really doesn't say the name of God. He doesn't mention God because um, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and that's a little bit offensive. Um, it's he would actually say the kingdom of heaven, um, and what he's saying is not actually when you die flying away, your soul flying away. That's not what he's talking about. Um, he's saying, okay, so they lived in a world of kingdoms. They knew what it was like to live in a kingdom. And so kingdom of heaven, the idea here is, imagine that the kingdom you're living in was ruled by God and all God's servants. Imagine what that would look like, how just it would be, and how everyone's needs would be met, and how there'd be joy and celebration, um, and there'd be peace. That's the kingdom of heaven, and it's accessible to you now. You just got to choose to live in it now by receiving the grace of Christ. That's what he's offering you. This is how this works. And, and so he says, Jesus went all over Galilee, and he taught in the synagogues, and he preached the good news, the good news of God's kingdom. And these people had never heard this before. They'd always heard that, no, this is going to be like um, a kingdom still ruled by people, and, but they're just going to be Jewish people instead of Roman. Like, we're going to overthrow this thing, and we're going to set up. And Jesus is teaching something vastly different. And he healed every illness and sickness that the people had. And news about him spread all over Syria. And he brought to him all who were ill with different kinds of sicknesses. Uh, Some were suffering with great pain. Others were controlled by demons. Some were shaking wildly. Others couldn't move at all. And Jesus healed all of them. And large crowds followed him. And some people came from Galilee, um, from the area known as the Ten Cities. Uh, Other versions will say the Decapolis. Um, It's just a way of saying Ten cities. Um, And from Jerusalem and Judea, others came from the area across the Jordan. And so when you're reading this, you're seeing crowds, news spread about him all over Syria, large crowds, ten cities, Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, across the Jordan River. People are coming from everywhere to hear what this rabbi is doing. This is different. People didn't do this. Why? Because rabbis didn't do what Jesus was doing. Rabbis, like like most churches today, they just simply taught the Bible. Here's how, and, and they would split theological hairs all day long. And they would sit around and say, here's how you think about this. Here's how you think about this. And the most important thing is doctrine. You've got to make sure it's all right. And this is blah, 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 blah. And they just teach. They just teach the Bible, and that's it. But what Jesus was doing, he was teaching. Don't get me wrong. Teaching is important. It's kind of my job. It's what he was doing. But not just that. 
He healed every illness and sickness that people had. Uh, people brought him to people who were ill with different kinds of sicknesses. Some were suffering with great pain, other controlled by demons, shaking wildly, couldn't move at all. Jesus healed all of them. So Jesus is engaging in the work of healing in people's lives. He's healing them. He cares about the people who were left to die on the side of the road. That's what would happen to these people. If someone had epilepsy in the ancient first century, it was assumed that they were demon-possessed and they were left to die. You wouldn't spend time with them lest the demon jump into you. So like Jesus brought them in. He's taking the highest position in their society and he's putting his hands on people who have leprosy, who are sick with contagious diseases and he knows this and he wraps his arm around them and he welcomes them in and they sit with him and they spend time with him and he's healing them and they're coming from everywhere. Imagine, imagine how these communities would have felt. You go into your synagogue one day and everyone in there looks like they're like five inches from death. You're like, what is happening? And there's this rabbi there and he's putting his hands on them and he's loving them and he's teaching them and no other rabbi ever welcomed them in before. This is not what rabbis did. So everything that Jesus is doing is taking the system and just smashing it on the ground and says, we're gonna rebuild this and the top's gonna be on the bottom and the bottom are gonna be on the top and we're gonna watch people change. We're gonna watch the lives change. We're gonna watch the world around us change and now here we are 2,000 years later and we're still talking about what the heck happened. And it's crazy what he was doing. And yet we, it's become so normal in our lives that we were, yeah, this, this is just the stuff that Jesus did. The Jewish audience reading this in the first century, they read this and they're like, what? This is insane. Who does this? And then we're about to get to the Sermon on the Mount and, and it gets, it just blows it all out of the water. The things that he starts saying um, to turn this entire system upside down. And so what do we do with this? And, and this is where like, debate comes in. Because it's not always clear what we do with this. It's, it's important to know and understand what Jesus was doing that was so vastly different than anything else anyone else had done. But one thing we do know, um, after the ascension of Jesus, there's no, there's no bodily presence of God here. Like the physical body of Christ is not here other than the church. We are called the body of Christ. When we come together, when we gather together, we are the body of Christ. And so we think about, so we're, we're like Rabbi Jesus. Um, we're going to need to make some disciples. How are we going to do this? Um, I have an idea. Why don't we go... Um, why don't we go to some, uh, some Christian colleges where people are well-educated, right? And they'd make good disciples. How about you look at what Jesus did going down to the shore where all the rejects were? And how about you look at them and you say, yeah, I believe that they can be a part of the body of Christ. I believe that they can learn this new way that they can excel in this new way and that they can lead in this new way in their own communities. And I believe that one day uh, these people can be equipped enough to be sent out and make new disciples and new churches and new bodies of Christ gathered everywhere. And as the body of Christ grows in the world, things become more just and more righteous and more holy. This is how it works. This was the plan all along. It's about us coming together and what we do as Rabbi Jesus together here. You look into the eyes of people and you believe in them. You say, look, whatever, whatever you say about yourself, that's just keeping you from moving forward. I'm not saying that about you. Grace and peace. You're not good enough, grace and peace. Um, you're not strong enough, hey, grace, grace and peace. And so we should be, 
our speech should be flowing with this. When you hear people talk about themselves in this way, like, oh, I don't have, I don't have this degree or that degree. Um, I'm no good at my job. I'm, I'm, my family's not, I'm not a good parent. I'm, I just can't do this. Grace and peace, this has nothing to do with you. Jesus has stepped in and he sees you and he sees your failures and he doesn't care and he thinks you can be just like him and it's okay. Come on in and we spend time together. And so part of discipleship is, yes, we study the words of Jesus and we try to respond in every single instance exactly the way Jesus would respond because he's our rabbi, we're his disciples and this is what we're gonna do. But a lot of that comes with also spending a lot of time together with the rabbi. And so the rabbi comes together and we spend time together and we gather in, in house groups and, and we gather here on Sundays and we gather as much as we can online, in person. We go out and we do things together. We spend time together. We confess. We mourn when people are sick. We go visit them. When people are hungry, we bring them food. Um, we decidedly choose to live together sometimes in groups, sometimes. And it, it looks different in the lives of everyone, but we are drawn to this together because as we gather together, we become Rabbi Jesus. And we gather people together and we send them out to make more disciples. And so this story is, it's disturbing to the original audience. And it should be beautiful to us because we can see what it's done to so many of us in our lives. Um, so we're going to take communion. Our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, communion is the picture of this. This is how it's done because Jesus, his picture was totally different. What Jesus did was took the whole system, flipped it upside down, and he says, instead of making you work really hard for this thing, I'm going to pour myself out for you. Instead of you pouring yourself out for me to earn, I'm I'm going to pour out this whole thing for you. And so I will allow myself to be broken and bled out. Body of Christ, symbolized by the bread broken for you. Blood of Christ, poured out, spilled for you. Um, This is the symbol of the gospel. This is how it works. And so we, as followers of Rabbi Jesus, allow ourselves in our communities, in our world, to be broken and poured out for the healing and the forgiveness of others and the reconciliation of all things to God. Um, When this is over, we're going to sing one more song, and then uh, we have some groups. I believe they're in the lobby, and they're going to be talking to you about different ways you can get involved in this kind of stuff, the exact stuff that Jesus was doing. Um, It's gospel work. It really is. And so let's pray. Let's take communion. Father, thank you for who you are, for what you're doing here in our midst and in our community. We love you, Father. Shape us in your image. Make us like you. As we now come to the communion table, remind us that we don't really have much to bring. Some of us are more holy than others. But it doesn't matter. What we bring to the table, no matter what it is, we all receive the exact same thing. We receive the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ spilled for us, for our healing, for our wholeness. Thank you. In your name, amen.